Hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Rainy Market Minute. Today is Tuesday, July 19th, and this is episode number 155. My name is Justin Hewn. I'm your host and the founder and publisher of the Uranium Insider Pro Newsletter, the only investing newsletter that focuses solely on uranium and publishes on a regular monthly basis. As always, nothing that you see or hear in this podcast is intended to be investing advice. I'm not your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Please always do your own due diligence when it comes to investing and always take responsibility for your own choices. All right, good to be back with you guys again today. Had a pretty darn decent day out there in the markets. Um, really big day. S&P was up, I believe, over 2% on the day, which is historically quite a large move for uh, that very large index. Uh, uranium stocks did very well. Some of the large caps um, put in 5 6 7% gains on the day. Great to see. Uh, you actually saw some inflows reported by URNM, which is the first time we've seen some inflows in quite a while by either ETF. So that's nice to see. I'll go over that in just a moment. Um, have some uh, a couple of points to make about Germany, uh, some updates from Paladin that I think are interesting in terms of messaging to the market. And one more uh, other element I wanted to mention in the mailbag section that I'm forgetting off the top of my head here, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, tomorrow, I will be here doing a market minute on Wednesday, the 20th. I will not be doing a market minute on Thursday, the 21st, because of the members only webinar that I've been talking about over the past week or so. I think this is going to be a very, very important webinar and uh, very much looking forward to having our guests with us and speaking deeply about um, the, the nuclear fuel cycle primarily, but also just about the markets in general. All right, well, why don't we jump right into the daily scoreboard here? Spot price of uranium uh, unchanged from yesterday. It's, it's. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in the spot market right now. Not a whole lot going on there. This is kind of the su summer doldrums with uh, in terms of the of the spot market for U308. However, today, as I mentioned in one of the previous market minutes, was the uh, the, the meeting that, that it has not been planned for very long. And that took place, this is the NEI conference. It was basically a half day conference today in Washington, DC. And uh, all of the who's who in terms of utilities and all the players, major players in the nuclear fuel cycle, um, a, a number of producers all had representatives there. This was an important meeting to discuss primarily um, enrichment and conversion capacities in the West. And so a lot is going to come out of this meeting, in my opinion, um, as things trickle out over the next couple of weeks from this meeting, uh, I will be able to update you with certain aspects of that. But of course, we're going to dive really deep into that in the webinar because our guest was in attendance at this conference. With all of that said, the market is very quiet in terms of the spot market. However, there's much happening in the conversion and the enrichment markets, and that has a lot to do with what is about to happen in the U308 market. Uh, SPUT did not issue any new units. Obviously, they're still trading at a discount to NAV, so therefore they did not raise any cash, nor do they buy any additional pounds. They're still sitting on $55.1 million in their treasury. And the NAV, the discount to NAV did shrink again, closing at just over 9% discount to NAV. The trust did trade up today with an unchanged spot market. So the discount will continue to shrink after today's trading action. Fantastic. Let's keep going, boys. Uh, like I said yesterday, um, URNM did report an increase of 50,000 shares outstanding. No changes for URA. That led to a little over 3 million buying, which effectively erased the 3 million selling URA had done. Um, based on the reporting yesterday for uh, probably um, later part of last week. So the flows, the inflows and the outflows have been relatively small. Uh, the inflows have been almost non-existent. The outflows have been relatively small. All things considered with this sell-off, pretty impressive that we've seen this level 
of, uh, of share count just kind of maintained by the ETF. So pretty interesting stuff on that front. The joint uh, AUM, the assets under management for URA and URNM rose by 65 million from the uh, additional shares by, from URNM now comes in at 2.15 billion, which is still more than one and a quarter billion below its mid-April high of over 3.4 billion in assets under management. Most of that retracement in terms of AUM came from portfolio depreciation, not redemption. So that's the actual value of their underlying holdings being sold off by the risk-off environment we have been in in the markets over the past couple of months. All right. Why don't we go ahead and take a look at the charts? Starting off with URA, a pretty decent day here, up over 4% on the day, um, 4.18% to be exact. Decent volume, uh, above average volume, not huge breakout volume, but still a very, very good day for the largest ETF in the space. Um, this chart is starting to recover a bit. We made a higher high from last week. That's a good sign. Uh, we're back right around the levels of that lower trend line within this long-term accumulation cylinder. It's also a good sign. We're at least above that shortest term moving average, that 20-day uh, moving average. And we're approaching the 50-day. We'll see if we can break through that. That would obviously be good. I'd like to see these moving averages start to flatten out at least the, the 20-day and the 50-day. Uh, let's see these things get horizontal, if not start to perk up. And the 200-day still is moving down. We're still trading below a declining 200-day moving average. Not a great sign. And uh, RSI definitely recovering. We're back, back above that 50 level in positive territory for the RSI. After extremely obvious um, positive divergence in the RSI that I had noted over the past number of weeks with this lower low that we've seen in a lot of equities across the space, but RSI making a higher low that is positive divergence. It's usually a bullish signal for at least a short-term bounce to the upside, which we are getting right now. Looking at Cameco, Cameco also had a very good day, 4.59% up, uh, slightly above average volume, but not huge volume. Still not seeing breakout volumes here. Just seeing kind of some risk trickle back into the markets. Um, there was an interesting tweet today put out there that, uh, that that hedge funds are are sitting on record levels of cash. A lot of funds um, increase their cash positions to take risk off the table um, by selling down some of their holdings over the past couple of quarters. And uh, Cuppy uh, Harris Kupperman. He, uh, he manages a fund and he um, he's made some really big wins in the oil space and uranium as well. He's long uranium. Um, he made it a, a very good point that these funds are showing negative returns for the first half of the year and you don't really turn that around by being in cash. So um, he's expecting funds to be more aggressive and putting cash to work in, in the second half of the year, trying to get some yield back from this first half of the year. Uh, so we'll see if that if that comes to fruition. The, the thesis is sound as far as I can tell. Let's take a look at the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Traded up 2.84% on the day, did pull back significantly from the highs on the day, rejected right around that 50-day. After a pretty strong bounce off of this area of support that I highlighted with this horizontal bar here, RSI, also over the 50 level. So up to almost 3% on the day with uranium uh, unchanged. We're probably right around a 65 to 7% discount to NAV, which you know what? We're moving in the right direction. I would love to see this break out to the upside on volume. That would be a major, major signal. As the choice 
the, the go-to vehicle for institutional money in the uranium space, which is what SPUT has become. That would be a signal that money is piling back into the uranium sector. And the sector is so small, we're sitting at right around $30 billion valuation, total valuation of all of the companies publicly traded in the uranium space. Astonishingly small market. And when funds really flow into this thing, everything moves, almost everything moves. Not everything moves in perfect uh, rising tide lifts all boats. There's certainly outperformers. But when funds start, when you see big volume come into spot and you see breakout moves, breakout candlesticks, that's the signal. And that's what we're looking for. We're still not there yet, but we're shaping up. Hopefully this lower low that we saw last week was just an undercut low in this area of resistance uh, and support, excuse me, previous resistance and then previous support. And that was a huge discount to NAV, an unjustifiably large discount to NAV, pushing 16, 17%, if I recall correctly. So now back at a 6% discount, we're getting close. I would like to see that discount continue to be chipped away as we move sideways, horizontally, slightly up. If we can move up another 5% and have uranium hold, that's a good sign. We are in a period of time, in my opinion, where the spot price of uranium is unlikely to fall steeply. Maybe we'll see slight slight movements down like we have over the last week or so on very slow, uh, very small volume, which is really not of a concern whatsoever. We're not going to see prices back in the 30s. And uh, the downside here for physical uranium is very, very low. And in my opinion, we have a limited period of time before we see breakout moves to the upside in the commodity itself. Therefore, I would like to see SPUT get closer to trading to NAV before that big move comes up in the uranium space. And that would be an ideal setup for money to come in and push this thing back above its, its net asset value and allow them to issue shares into the market, raising cash, buying more physical, which they've done a fantastic job of. I want to revisit this chart one last time before we uh, get into the mailbag section. This is URNM relative to the price of uranium. Huge move today. Uranium flat, equities up big. So, uh, you know, uranium flat, we had 4.8%. Uh, for URNM, 4.8% for URNM relative to the spot price. And I had highlighted in this uh, purple horizontal trend line here that not only had we filled this gap back from September, but we were trading literally back at levels before the breakout of this bull market. And now we have moved up substantially over the past two weeks off of that bottom. That also had a very obvious and significant positive divergence in the relative strength. And now the RSI on this particular chart is going on a moonshot. This is beautiful. This is beautiful to see the miners moving back up relative to the metal. One more chart for you guys today. URA relative to the S&P. The S&P did put in a good day, but we put in a better day. I love it. I love to see a little bit of outsized alpha here with the outsized beta that we've seen more recently. Great to see us back above that trend line. Will this prove to be an undercut low? Will we regain this trend and move back up relative performance to the S&P 500? I sure would like to think that we will. Okay. Mailbag section. So I did not uh, uh, yield or uh, field a question, I should say, but I just want to make a couple of points. One, there is a, uh, a big story on German energy policy in the Wall Street Journal editorial page yesterday. And why do we keep talking about Germany? Is the German, German potential uh, restarts of their idled nuclear power plants that they just shut down in December, is that a major part of some supply and demand thesis? Absolutely, absolutely not. 
is the market, the investor market, let's say, expecting the last three reactors that are that are online currently to stay online. And that's, we're baking that in. No, that's Germ Germany completely shutting out all the reactors. That's the base case for demand for nuclear in terms of supply and demand modeling expectations, realistic expectations coming from Germany. However, Germany has become kind of a poster child of what not to do in terms of energy policy. And while there are certainly um, flawed energy policies around the world, and uh, currently the United States really is no exception, um, with you know the Biden administration cutting off the Keystone Pipeline on day one of his presidency, only to blame inflation and high gas prices on Putin, uh, it, you know it's it's completely in, complete insanity. And what we're going through right now in terms of inflation, in terms of supply chain disruptions, uh, this is a hundred percent, hundred percent created by poor policy. This is not, um, this is not the work of the free markets just running out of materials and running out of labor. This is absolutely created. I'm going to leave that there, but why are we talking about Germany? Germany, uh, has spent an unbelievable amount of money on solar and wind. And while it does make up a significant portion of their grid at this point, it is not getting them out of the situation they're in which is uh, intermittent and potentially zero gas coming from Russia. We highlighted this precarious position that they were in, in our newsletter, in, I think it was December of 2020, um, when we discussed how uh, Russia kind of has, uh, has Europe sort of, uh, they've, they've got them under their thumb in terms of energy policy and they can dictate, um, they can dictate political dealings, let's say, by switching that energy on and off. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So Wall Street Journal talks about the situation in Germany. I'm gonna just read a quick passage from this article. Europeans are drafting emergency plans to ration supply to manufacturers, but German leaders are still shutting down their three nuclear reactors by year end. To quote the final words of the bridge over River Kwai, madness, Germany must resort to burning coal and oil as its trillion dollar investment in wind and solar cannot make up for Russian gas. So what Germany has done is they've put, um, this article is stating a trillion dollars. I don't recall that it was that much. I know the energy Vendi was more accurately about 500 to 600 billion, still an unbelievably large number for essentially what has become a failed um, uh, energy policy, okay? So if, if it's not already clear, the problem with renewables, generally speaking, is they're intermittent. And when I say renewables, we're really talking about the source of energy once they're in position, right? So are solar panels renewable? Well, no, I mean, they come from raw materials mined out of the earth as well. And that process obviously emits carbon, emits pollution, the energy used to do that mining, um, uh, the, all of the metals and all of the elements. And now there's a huge uh, problem with solar panels and, and, and wind, uh, wind turbine blades filling up landfills, okay? So the sun and the wind is what is referred to as renewable in terms of renewable energy. So the problem with that is that they're intermittent. And if you have insufficient battery capacity, which grids do, um, we just don't, we're just not there yet in terms of battery capacity to store the energy that's created when the sun is shining, the wind is blowing and utilize it when it, it is not. Um, so to the extent that your grid is 
uh, highly exposed to renewable energy, which Germans, the Germany grid is. I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's a lot. It's something like 40% or something like that, if not more, is coming from uh, wind and solar. And you don't have the battery backup to uh, buffer that intermittency. You have to have base load power that can be easily cycled up and down in terms of the output of the energy, right? Um, that's gas, that's coal, okay? Um, and, th and that's exactly what happens. So now the, to the extent that their grid has become more and more renewable, it also has become more and more coal. They have the dirtiest energy in Europe. And much of that has to do with them shutting down their reliable, clean, baseload nuclear against all logic. And now they are on the world stage right now because they have the most to lose in terms of Russian delivery of natural gas. Um, so really the reason we're talking about this so much, and it's, it's such in the, in the, in the eye of the public right now, especially in terms of, you know, nuclear investing communities that this is the poster child of what not to do, shut down your nuclear, go balls to the wall, renewables, and you end up needing Russian gas. And when you can't get it, then your citizenry pays, they pay with, with blackouts, they pay with unbelievably high prices for energy and they pay with, uh, more air pollution than they were promised in the energy vending. So that's why we talk about it so much. And in my opinion, they might be in a position where they can't shut these down. Okay. So uh, I'm going to mess up the person's title. I don't know if the minister of energy or something like that recently had stated that they can't keep the reactors that are currently online online longer than December because they can't get the fabricated fuel in time. Well, I believe it was Westinghouse that came out and said, yeah, that's not true. We can get it to you in time. So he was caught in a lie, essentially, that the these reactors, the three that remaining online currently that are set to shut down in December, they absolutely can keep running perfectly safe, perfectly fine. All they need to do is get that fuel on order and make the decision. Well, they might be in a, in a position where they cannot avoid keeping them online. So obviously, that's what we would like to see not because it presents a shift, but obviously they do have a shift in public opinion on this. The public, the German citizenry want these plans to stay online. Okay, so uh, maybe it's not as a positive sentiment as you'll see, let's say in Japan, which is definitely majority in support, but uh, this obviously would be even for the short term, let's say the next year or two, to get through this war, uh, just to get you know Europe back on its feet and Germany back on its feet. On that note, um, one of EDF's um, EPRs that have been shut down due to concerns about corrosion. Um, I've mentioned in the past that half of France's nuclear fleet is currently offline. Some of that is uh, reloading outages, and most of it is maintenance outages and concerns about corrosion in some of the piping. So one of these plants uh, has been determined to not have corrosion, and they're going to start the process of getting that back up and running, they will have it up and running by October. So that's good news. Uh, that's good news for France. That's potentially good news for some of the surrounding countries that they export energy to. Now there's a major heat wave. There's, we're seeing droughts. A lot of French, uh, France's nuclear reactors are set uh, on rivers that the rivers are running kind of low. So it's possible the reactor is going to have to lower their output. God, it's just a mess right now. Um, I really, it's really not looking good over there, but that is at least one positive piece of news coming out of Europe's energy policy. Also, Belgium, Belgium flipped. Uh, two, two reactors that were set to shut down, they're keeping them online. I believe it is for another 10 years. 
Go Belgium. Uh, congratulations on that. Okay, a couple of other quick pieces of news. I realize I'm kind of going long, but um, I do know that I'm not going to be here on Thursday and potentially also not on Friday. So I want to get this information out there if I can. <clears throat> Uzbekistan uh, reported, I believe it was yesterday, uh, they're currently the seventh largest uranium producer. So Uzbekistan has similar production style as Kazakhstan, similar geology. They're producing with ISR. Um, it's, uh, Uzbekistan is a bit of a black box. It's difficult to get great data coming out of there. Um, Navoy is the uranium producer there. And I believe that they are partially, if not entirely, um, state-owned. So it's kind of a similar story. Uh, when you think back of 100% state-owned Kazatomprom in the, the mid-2000s, the way that they ramped up was phenomenal. Um, they, were, they were making a play on a depreciating Tenge, and they were just pumping out uranium and increasing their production levels so unbelievably fast. They went from producing almost nothing in the early 2000s to producing, uh, gosh, uh, 60 plus million pounds a year in the early 2010s. Within a decade, they, they ramped up that much. So Uzbekistan has kind of been one of those where it's like, uh, we want to keep our eye on this, want to make sure that um, their numbers aren't increasing drastically. And they currently produce uh, they currently produce about 9 million pounds a year. They're a significant producer. They have offtake agreements with a number of traders, one of them being Itachu, it's a Japanese trader. And so they get material from the Uzbeks and they sell that into the market, perfectly fine. That's what markets do. So, but the Uzbeks did announce that they plan to increase their uranium production, okay? So what are they shooting for? A total of 7,100 tons by 2030, that would essentially be doubling their production by 2030, okay? That's another 9 million pounds by 2030. Uh, what's our observation on this? We need those pounds. We're gonna need those pounds. So um, this is not a concern whatsoever. Um, we're going to need those pounds, okay? So Uzbek plans on ramping production. That's a very reasonable goal and a reasonable timeframe. As far as I'm concerned, uh, more power to you, Navoy. Okay, lastly, I want to mention Paladin. Paladin put out a news release. Uh, it was this morning or it might have been yesterday. Basically, they're updating their mine restart plan. Okay, so they put out an original mine restart plan. I think it was in June 2020. They reiterated that plan in November of last year. So we're talking eight months ago, okay? Eight months ago, uh, they confirmed the restart cost estimate of Langer Heinrich of U.S., $81 million, 81 million CapEx. Okay, since then, they announced that they would be restarting Langer, Langer Heinrich, and they announced that they have the capital to do so. They raised the capital. What did they release um, July 19th? So that was this morning, okay? This morning, total projected capital expenditure has increased to US $118 million. So that is a 45% increase in expected CapEx to restart a mine on care and maintenance in eight months, a 45% increase in CapEx in eight months. Um, I think that expectations that mines are going to come online on time and on budget to fill a supply gap are completely unfounded and not proven by historical reference. Um, it's going to take 
a lot more time and a lot more money to bring supply on, especially for greenfield projects, especially for greenfield projects. So the mines are on care and maintenance. Um, in fact, Paladin, excuse me, Paladin, Cameco's conference call is next week. I believe it's next Wednesday, if I recall correctly, for their Q2 conference call. Um, they'll likely update the market on uh, MacArthur River. And I don't think that that mine is going to be online as quickly as they had initially planned. We'll, hopefully we'll get some more news from them uh, specifically about that. But I bring up Paladin, not to highlight Paladin, but just to say that it, costs are increasing, and this is not a surprise to anybody watching this or listening to this, costs are increasing across the board, across sectors, across the world. It, there's inflation essentially everywhere. Um, and so we can expect that to be inputted into the costs of producing uranium as well. So further contracts that Paladin might sign for, for delivering uranium to utilities going out into the future are likely going to be informed by the rapidly rising cost of getting this mine back online, let alone the cost of production once they're back into production. So you can take those uh, uh, marginal cost of production numbers and Paladin's not really on the margin. You know, they're kind of a mid-range cost producer. But the, the, the projects that are on the margin, I always bring up Bannerman. This is a, bit, a very big project, um, hundreds of millions of pounds, but it's low grade. It's in Namibia. And, um, you know, it's a good project and great management. Love Brandon. I think he's an amazing, amazing guy. Um, that this, this project needed, uh, you know, two years ago, they needed cost in, in the 60s. Um, so you can probably take the cost on the margin. You can probably bump that up. Now, they, they, maybe they can do some work to lower their all-in costs. But my point is not also here, not to point out Paladin, uh, Bannerman, but the costs that are on the margin, greenfield costs on the margin in terms of the higher price of production, that price is going much, much higher. So the base case for where the price of uranium needs to go just continues to climb. And yet we are sitting here uh, uh, moving up and down 25 cents here, 25 cents there in the mid 40s. I mean, we're, ta we're talking about a minimum doubling of the uranium price from here. Um, on what time frame? That's not for me to say. Um, but I do think that it's going to start moving up and it's going to start moving up relatively soon here. So hopefully all of those um, pieces of news, the Wall Street Journal uh, article about Germany is definitely worth reading. Um, Paladin's news release is definitely worth reading. I mean, these are things that are informing the markets. They're not necessarily even company specific, right? And of course, Paladin's release is company specific, but it speaks to general conditions in the market, um, general conditions across mining sectors even. So um, I think we're in for, for a serious run here. And I think that the prices are going to have to go to levels uh, far higher than we were planning in, in terms of our, you know, our, our thesis for this sector, it just continues to shift and continue to grow and continue to change. And, um, you know, lucky for us, it continues to move in mostly positive, if not entirely positive directions. Um, Navoy increasing production uh, by 2030 is uh, absolutely welcome. You know, we, we look at the growth of nuclear as a very, very good thing. It's something we're always pulling for. And we're going to need that. We're going to need that uranium. We're going to need Kazakhstan ramping production. We're going to need Navoy ramping production. We're going to need DASA online. We're going to need Langer online. We're going to need MacArthur online. Um, that, you know, we're probably going to need Honeymoon online. Uh, so, so all of these projects are going to be needed to fulfill the gap in, uh, in supply that exists now. And it's only going to grow, especially in this bifurcated market with 
uh, a limited amount of SWU and a limited amount of enrichment and conversion in the West. And that's really what we're going to dive into on Thursday, but crazy market. All right. Hope you all are doing well. I will see you tomorrow. Um, and to reiterate, I will not see you on Thursday and I possibly will not see you on Friday either. Okay. Take care. Be well. Thank you so much. I do appreciate all of you. If you do like these videos um, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, thank you. Please leave me a review. I would appreciate it. An honest review. And if you're watching on YouTube, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell, and you'll be notified whenever we publish, which is just about every day. All right. Be well, everybody. See you tomorrow. Cheers.